and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How do I run PHP locally? I've actually never done that. Like maybe in 2003. This is a really interesting tangent. I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. But before we introduce her, I want to make sure we also talk about the other voices you're going to hear on this podcast. That's right. We have other hosts. So today on this podcast, we have an overwhelming amount of British people. So first off, Ben Nichols, how are you doing today? Hello, dear boy. I'm fabulous. Oh, good, sir. That's wonderful, sir. Thank you, sir. And Errol, how art thou? I feel like the proper name for a collection of British people is an overwhelm. It's possible. An overwhelm, a colonialist, a sadness. I don't know. There's a ton of things we could say. I'm American. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Good to have you on here. Thank you for representing the other side of the pond. By the way, the British people are laughing hysterically on the other side of the call. I know you can't see that, listeners. Except for one person who's just like, what is going on? What have I signed myself up for? This is Ruth Cheesley. Ruth, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Excellent. I'm really glad to hear it. Ruth is an amazing open source person. Ruth, I'm just going to redo that because you actually have a title and it's written right here. Okay. Ruth is the project lead for Mautic. Mautic, 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 whatever you want to call it, which is at Acquia. Acquia, of course, is the large umbrella organization that's kind of responsible for the Drupal community. We'll get into exactly how that works in the future. I probably already messed that up. But Ruth is a longtime member of that space. And I'm really excited to have her on because she has been coming to the Open Source Collective Community Calls for a while. That's right. I do have another hat. I am helping out at Open Source Collective. And Ruth is one of the main people for Montic, which is one of the main projects that really does a lot of work on Open Collective, which is great. And so we invited her on the call because we don't have enough talks from people who are actually part of actual communities of coders. We talk a lot to Ospo people. Occasionally we get developers on this podcast, but it's really great to talk to people who fit in this sweet spot. Ruth is calling today from Ipswich in the UK, which is a lovely place. That's where the oyster yacht yards are. If you ever want to get an oyster, go to Ipswich. Not known for anything else historically that ever happened in the history of the world. Let's just slide right on past that. Ruth, tell me a bit about how you ended up being the project lead for Mautic and what Mautic is as well. Yeah, sure. So so Mautic's an open source marketing automation tool. It lets you do the basic stuff like equivalents like MailChimp do. So sending out your emails to lists of people, understanding what those people are doing on your websites and your applications, and using that information to then personalize how you communicate to them, not only in email, but also multi-channel. So you could integrate SMS, pop-ups on the website, WhatsApp, anything really. So yeah, it's a pretty cool, powerful system. It's been around since about 2015. Something like that. And how I got involved, I mean, I was originally involved in the Joomla community from about 2009-ish. And the founder of Mautic was also on the production leadership team of Joomla while I was on the community leadership team of Joomla. So we talked quite a lot. I was running a, a digital agency at that time. So I was offering marketing as well as web development Joomla. So when it came out, I was one of the very early adopters and was really active in the community, giving feedback to developers who built a tool for marketers that didn't necessarily work as marketers would expect it to to work. And yeah, I very much come from a background of, I'm not a developer, I'm a user of open source and I contribute through non-development contribution channels. So for me in Joomla, that was running user groups, starting up the marketing working group, supporting the community leadership team, mainly focusing on those two things that I was doing. 
And then, yeah, when Acquia acquired Mortic Inc., which was the company providing hosted services of Mortic, the community was in a bit of a difficult situation, that it was a bit stagnant, things hadn't been going so well, and there was a lot of fear and uncertainty after that acquisition happened. So that's sort of what I stepped into as community manager. At that time, I was quite active in the community and I happened to be looking for work at the time. So it was just kind of a good situation to be in, really. And I stepped up to project lead about two years ago, maybe a bit more than two years ago, from community manager. So it's certainly been a bit of a whirlwind <laughs> the last three years, but we made a load of progress. So it's been really awesome. Awesome. I'm really glad you're able to step into that lead. For listeners who don't know, can you differentiate between Joomla, Drupal, Acquia and Motic really quickly so we can have those in our minds during this podcast. Yeah. So Joomla is an open source content management system, as is Drupal, as is WordPress, similar, but just do things differently and have different values and ways of doing things. Acquia contributes a lot to Drupal. Andres is obviously the founder of Drupal and he's the CTO at Acquia. And Acquia built a marketing cloud and part of the marketing cloud includes software called Campaign Studio, which is based on Mortic. So just like the Acquia CMS is based on Drupal, Campaign Studio is based on Mortic. So when they acquired Mortic Inc., which had that software as a service tool that they've rolled into Campaign Studio, they also acquired the brand and the responsibility for the community. So one of my first jobs, which was a whole podcast in its own, really, I guess, is setting up a governance model that worked for Acquia and worked for the community as well. So, you know, I'm glad you brought up Joomla because I went to your website and it's like a business website. It's really, really cool for like a personal portfolio. It's in the show notes if you want to go to it. But what I saw at the bottom was powered by Joomla. And I'm like, what? Because you, you work pretty much for Acquia, right? And it, it, I, yeah, yeah. Okay, so hopefully but, I don't lose my job. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you put it on there. So at the bottom. Yeah. But no, it was interesting. But I was going through your notes and the show notes. And I was just saying, like, from someone who also organizes open source communities at my job, what tools do you use to do that? I really want to get different people's perspectives because I think I have all the right tools, but I want to know what you use. Yeah. Uh, well, my, my personal website is Joomla. It's what I know. And actually, I just updated it to Joomla 4, which is amazing. The differences between 3 and 4 are fantastic. So amazing job to the community who've done that work. So what tools do we use in terms of managing and organizing the Mortic community? I think that's what you're asking, right? Yeah. Is it Orbit? Is it Common Room? What are the tools that you use so I can maybe look at some? Yeah, sure. So the central tool that we used in terms of managing community health and how are we doing? Are we growing? Is an open source community relationship management tool called Savannah CRM. Savannah CRM is available self-hosted, but we actually have a hosted account purely because we haven't got the resources to manage the infrastructure to have a self-hosted account. And that allows us to bring in all of our channels of community engagement. We have forums on discourse. We have Slack. We have the website where people write blogs, for example, Stack Overflow, Reddit, Twitter, when people are mentioning and engaging with us on Twitter. But also we can use the API to pull in contributions that are relevant just to our community. So for example, if someone has completed one of the Jira issues and they're the signee and it's marked as done, then they get a contribution credit. If someone reviews a pull request on GitHub, they get a contribution credit. Like normally you just count the person who makes the PR, but for us, reviewing is just as important. And it brings it all together, deduplicates it all, does some magic, assigns it to companies if the person is working for a company and lets us get an overview of 
everyone in the community really, what people are doing, where they're contributing, what topics they're talking about. So if we want to actually find people who are talking about Kubernetes or talking about campaign builder, we can search our information and find who are the most engaged people in in those topics and who's the most connected. So when I was looking for people to lead the teams, I use that really heavily to find who are the people who are active, who are the people who are connected to lots of people to find who might be good candidates to lead areas of the project. So that's probably the most fundamental tool that we use in the community management side of things. Thank you for sharing about how you think about members of your community and how you put them into not necessarily buckets, but like how you identify where they're contributing. You mentioned earlier, one of my favorite words, governance, and that you were brought on to help out with governance. That is a tough job. So congrats that you were able to say that without grimacing. Can you tell I didn't us say there wasn't any grimacing. Okay, cool. Then tell us, can you tell us a bit about what the hard bits were, what your strategy was? How did you help that process along, which I'm sure is not done either. Yeah. So, I mean, at the time, what had happened is the Mortic Inc. team basically wanted the community to sort of start taking more ownership over releases. And so they sort of stepped back from making releases, but there wasn't really a sort of community empowerment process to set up workflows and training and stuff for people to take on the releases. So it just all sort of slowed down. So really at that point, it was like, if we don't want to have the Mortic Inc. engineers leading the releases, we need to have some kind of process in the community for how we do stuff. How do we decide what gets merged? How do we decide when we do releases? All of that stuff. But also how do we like nothing else in the community was organized. Marketing, community management, how do you run a meetup group? How do you start? Nobody really knew how to get involved at any stage in the community. So the first step really was, well, what does Acquia want slash expect? What influence and guidance do Acquia want to have? And what does the community want, need and expect to have? And at this time, there was a very real chance of a fork happening. It was that kind of discussion. And the community actually created a manifesto of what they wanted from Acquia, which is still on our blog. So you can read the manifesto. And at the same time, we were working with the community, looking at other open source projects to see how does their governance structure work. We were looking at organizations like Ubuntu and Canonical and how does that relationship work? Organizations like Joomla, which are completely volunteer driven with no company involvement whatsoever. Drupal, all kinds of open source projects and talking to the maintainers to say, what this is your model, but what actually works and what doesn't work. Because sometimes when I talked with the maintainers, they're like, well, it's great on paper, but in reality, this is how it works. So that whole process took quite a lot of back and forth thing. And we wanted to have a situation where there wasn't the overpowering control from Acquia, that there was balance between community decision-making and Acquia decision-making. And so we came up with a model, which is overcomplicated for what we needed at that stage, but we kind of built it so that it would scale as we wanted the community to scale. It would support us, which was having five teams. So we have a community team, which I remember them now, community education, product, marketing, and legal and finance. So those were like the five teams that sort of got chunked out of all the things that we needed to do. And we did this at a community sprint in Amsterdam together just before the pandemic. And then those kind of rolled up into steering groups, which we don't have because we don't really need them at this time. But practically, we're going to have like two steering groups, which rolled up into a council for community members and for Aquians, which is effectively like a board, really, for like high level issues or discussion points or escalation parts for things that can't be decided at the team level 
or that are just a bit strategic. Like if we need to make a change in direction that's going to affect the whole project and anyone who depends on the project, that kind of happens at the council level. So that's the, and then from the teams down, there's like working groups and then individual contributors. So people have a clear way that they can get involved from grassroots into a working group, into a team, up to the council, for example. It's amazing hearing the amount of work that goes yeah. into that. I mean, that's a massive undertaking. I'm also, I'm reminded Nadia Eggball in the book, Working in Public, compared the Drupal and WordPress communities to the Basque Autonomous Region of Spain where they kind of just do their own thing. And it's not really the same as open source at large. They're kind of their own communities that have their own practices and their own standards, which are really good and like hard of, but also don't speak Spanish at all. And <laughs> one of my questions I have for you is, does that assessment also apply to Motic? Because you said you've looked at these other communities that do this sort of work. You looked at Ubuntu, you looked at Drupal and the amount of adulting going on in the process that I'm seeing of setting up these steering committees. Oh, no, we don't need those now. A board. OK, well, we here's something that works as a board and it functions just fine. Here are the five working groups. I'm just curious if you were able to do that because of some sort of sequestration of community-ness for the Monta community. Or do you feel like that's actually an inadequate metaphor and you're just the same as every other open source project on the web? I think we're just the same as any open source project on the web. I think that the difficulty with the time at which the acquisition happened for the Malta community is that there was no governance, real governance or structure at all at that time. So everyone who, the majority of people who were in the community at that time, anything was better than what they had because they wanted to contribute, but the contributions weren't actually being accepted or there was no way to contribute with their skills. So I think that's what sort of energized everybody. Obviously, you're going to have people who are like, because it's a company involved in open source, they totally blow up like a volcano and they don't want anything to do with the project. We had some people decide that they wanted to leave the project when the acquisition was announced. But bringing everyone together who cared about it to form the governance structure rather than me saying, this is going to be the governance structure. Here you go. That was really important, I think. Having people involved, having people talking to each other and feel like they're empowered to be a part of that. And we didn't just kind of say, here it is. We were like, here's the first version. We can iterate on this. This is what all of these things mean. This is how we think they're going to work. So initially we said we wanted to have voting where anyone who's active in a team would vote for the leads and then the leads would vote for the council members. Way too complicated to start with. We just said, let's have the team leads just get voted by the community whoever is active and the team leads are on the council. But in the future, we will be having voting now that we've got more contributors. We will have a process for voting. So yeah, it's sort of making, make, not making things up as they go along, because that sounds like you haven't done your research, but it was like trying something out, iterating on it. If it doesn't quite work, tweaking it. Yeah. I think that my question follows on from this conversation, but pardon me, so I am in like a niche of open source and I'm always curious to kind of broaden my niche, essentially niche being the design side of things. So you're talking about your community and from like looking at the various like contributing guidelines and all the different kinds of spaces and hearing Richard just talk about like the sense that some of these projects kind of operate a little bit outside of open source, but hearing you bring it background and it operates the same. I noticed that you have contributing guidelines for all different types of folks doing all different types of contributions. And I'm always really curious to hear stories about how 
based off of maybe some of the stuff that you've said about governance and how the teams work together. Stories about how they play together. Do they play well together? Often I hear stories about, especially from the design side of things, that they find it difficult to play in the same space as the developers. So to kind of boil it down to a really simple interaction, but I'd love to hear like some success stories or maybe some things that have been really tricky between different kinds of functions within the open source, given that you've got like such a big community doing lots of different things. That may be an illusion because we don't have a huge community of active contributors. So we have a big community, but we don't have a massive number of makers, people who are actually doing stuff. But I mean, we are still working on it. So for example, when we have a release, then our marketing team or someone from the marketing team has to liaise with the release lead to find out what's actually going to be in the release, particularly a minor or a major release, what's in the release. And when we make a release, we always make the effort to pull out, these are the things that are relevant for marketers in this release. These are the things that are relevant for developers in this release. And so for someone who's a a marketer, trying to understand from the developer what the developer functions are and write about that for the blog can be really challenging. So in a way, it's sort of a bit of an educative process for developers having them explain it to someone like quite often they'll explain it to me and I'll be like okay this is what we need to write for the marketing it needs to be explained to someone who has a foot in both camps sometimes in order for it to be clear I don't know if we've had any kind of real difficulties one of the things we're working on at the moment is creating what we call tiger teams like small teams of experts who can become subject matter experts in a particular part of the product because it's quite a big product with lots of different things And one of the things we're trying to have at one tiger team for that will cover the whole project is UX. So we're trying to engage some of the UX people from Acquia because their product will inherit whatever we put into Mautic Core in the reviewing process to be like, please review what these developers are suggesting and tell us if you think that's a good idea or not. Because marketers have ideas of how it might impact them, but that's not necessarily relevant for all marketers. It's not necessarily going to work for people who are blind or people who are using uh, assistive technologies. And we don't all have the same level of expertise. So I guess it's like establishing that common level of respect is quite important and establishing the culture that you don't know everything, but other people know the things you don't know. So trying to encourage them to reach out across teams, trying to encourage people to make those connections. And we've set our Jira instance up so that we can have high level project, like an epic across multiple teams. So when we have a major release, there'll be tasks in different teams, projects for the same project so that they can all see who's working on what, which I think also really helps bring people together. I think that's helpful for getting people to know how they can contribute. I like how you said we have a lot of contributors, but not a lot of makers because breaking down who contributors are and how they do different work is really important. I'm just scrolling through your transaction list on Open Collective because you can do that because it's transparent. (laughs) And I'm noticing that you paid for technical docs. You paid for a lot of stuff related to the conferences that you throw, which I believe like PyCon for PSF actually bring back a lot of the money into Maltic. I'm not noticing expenses or invoices for you, which is an awkward question, but I'm noticing the amount of work that you do is really important and someone is presumably funding you for that work. So I want to know how you see your role or the roles of other people who are paid as being part of a sustainable path for Mautic itself. And can you just talk a bit about how money has a play in the ecosystem as well as attribution? Yeah, so Acquia pays me full time to work in the community. And that's been the case since I was community lead. 
So obviously with that comes the responsibility of transparency from my perspective. And with that comes a vested interest from me because my employment is through Acquia. So I do have to make sure that I'm really clear which hat I have on. And I'm really clear in discussions that I may have a bias and that I need to not be involved in for that reason. But without that funding, without them paying for me to do this role, I don't think the project would be where it is now. I don't know if the project would exist, to be quite frank, now, because it has taken an enormous amount of work and energy and time and effort to herd the cats, as I'm sure anyone involved in open source will know, and get things moving, get things, establish workflows, do the research that you need to do to find out how other projects do things so that you can bring that into your project and experiment with it. So from that side of things, if we had to pay someone to do my role, it wouldn't be practical, I don't think. And in the community, we are also trying out things like we had a contractor who worked for 10 hours a week for a six month period to work on a whole bunch of specific things, which worked really well, but funds are not infinite. So yeah, taking part in like Fund OSS and other projects like that, that has brought in funds has been really helpful. We got Season of Docs grant. So we've got a technical writer working with us at the moment on a Season of Docs project, which has been fantastic. Unfortunately, our conference this year didn't bring in anywhere near as much money as we were hoping because people just weren't sponsoring. They're sponsoring in-person events only. And we wanted to keep our global world conference online because it's much more accessible for people. So that was a bit of a, we've had to rebudget basically because of that. And we may have to think about how we're going to plan our funds in the future accordingly. But yeah, it's a big thing. And money is such a sensitive subject in open source. Yeah, just a quick note on sponsorship and in-person only. That's common. And there are some people in the industry, going to just say the oft-cited Dwayne O'Brien had a really interesting tweet thread a bit ago about how the global recession will mean that people will be tightening their budgets of corporate donations. Whether that means we should all have in-person conferences with one person being in-person and the rest being remote is an interesting question. So I'm holding one right now. This is an in-person podcast uh, based in Vermont and you are all just calling in here doing that. Thank you for that. But yeah, I'm really glad that Acquia pays you. It's interesting. I have another tough question, which is, do they pay full-time for engineers and or traditional coder roles for Motic as well? So they do have a Drupal acceleration team, which has got a large team of people who are just working in the open source community, which is proportionate to the amount of sales they have associated with Drupal. So Mautic and Campaign Studio is quite a small proportion of their income right now. So we don't have the same kind of resources available. We have half an engineer, basically. 50% of his time is dedicated to working on the community. And at the moment, he's doing a lot of our release management and code review because that's something that is really important. We don't have that many really technical developers who can help with writing unit tests and fixing things that aren't quite right and doing, yeah, doing that sort of things. Love to have more, but it's, yeah, like you were saying, budgets are being cut and it's a really hard ask to get that. But we do open source Friday. So we have got seven agencies in our community who give people time in their paid time on a Friday to contribute to the community, whether that's a whole day or half a day or a few hours. So that is one way that we're trying to encourage people to contribute sustainably. If their business is relying on on Motic and they're building a business around it, giving their staff a couple of hours on a Friday is is like the least they can do to help support the project, really. And that's been quite well received and people have appreciated it because they know if they make their PRs on a Thursday and they help with testing other PRs, people will also test theirs and it will get merged more quickly. So 
as a result, our release has had a lot more bug fixes. We've had a lot more engagement. People are just generally a lot more positive. So, Open Source Fridays is a really great way to get people from other companies to contribute. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because in general, in order to be sustainable, you need to not just have hobbyists working on a project like this. I mean, for some projects that can be totally sustainable by just having a hobbyist every day or weekday or month or something. But like those projects don't have large amounts of funds. They don't have large amounts of adoption. They don't have governance set up. So it's really great that you have that. I love this topic of conversation because, I mean, it's important to me right now because I'm trying to write a strategy for my small organization that I work at and around our, like, our open source commitments. And you talk about like open source Fridays, like bringing more people into open source generally, I think is something that you've written in the notes is something that you're really passionate about. And I'm really curious to know whether there's things that you can say right now or whether we should go read something or listen to a particular talk by yourself around like how smaller organizations or individuals can make that kind of contribution sustainable. Are there like things that we can implement? I think first and foremost, if you're using and relying on open source, it makes sense to somehow be able to contribute back to open source. So when I was running a business and I didn't have time, I would just put a levy on every invoice and that money would go towards open source. If you have the ability to give people time in their workday to contribute to projects that they want to contribute to, it reduces the expectation for them to do it in their spare time if they want to be active in that community. Because there are massive benefits for you as a business having a good presence in those communities. Well, I mean, we have people who their sole contribution is answering questions on the forum and their whole company reputation is based on them being really helpful signposting people to the right places or answering questions and then doing a tutorial on the forum, which they do in their work time because that tutorial they can then use for their customers. So they can just spend the time that they've spent using the stuff on and the community, just rewrite it slightly and then it's an article for the knowledge base. And I feel like that will also works for developers. You know, if you're fixing a bug in Mautic, that bug probably exists in your Mautic instance. You just haven't had a customer shouting about it yet. So spending time being able to fix it in your work time and then deploy the fix to your own instance, it just makes sense. But the challenge is obviously budgeting for that time in your work. So that's the difficulty. And that's part of the business planning, I guess, is making that an expense. Whether you expense it to every project you take on, whether you just block time in the day and say those hours are not available because they are contribution time. I guess that's up to the business to decide how to do that. But I think that is better for the avoiding burnout than just expecting people to do it as and when. And it's better for me as a maintainer because I know that at that time there's that drive, there's that energy and burst of everybody being around to do stuff. We know we can get stuff moving. Whereas if we're not quite sure when people are going to be available, it makes it a bit more difficult to make to get traction on things. If I can, I wanted to just take the conversation in a slightly different direction. So you've spoken a lot about how there was an existing relationship between Mortic and the kind of open source communities like Mortic, the vehicle that then was acquired by Acquia. And you've spoken about how you've created governance processes and created steering groups or created the framework for steering groups in order to ensure that the relationship between those two entities is productive and effective. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering whether you thought there would be anything that you would do differently if that relationship was kind of inverted. 
if there wasn't an organization there that a community wanted to kind of have a productive relationship with, would there be anything that an open source community could or should do today in order to encourage companies to come forward and encourage companies to to engage in that conversation and say, look, you know, we want to commit some time to this project. Is there anything there that you can kind of talk to that that we might recommend for projects? So in Mortic Project, we've created a partners program, which I, mean, I talked a bit about in another talk. If you want to know more about it, I can share the link to that talk in, in the show notes. But effectively, anyone who's a partner, they have to be contributing actively in the project. So we have to be able to see the history of contribution over three months. And they also have to contribute at a level that's fair for everyone. It's well, we use the Big Mac index to make it proportionate to the cost of Big Mac in the US times by the base rate, which is $100 in the US. So that is a way for us to say, like, if you want to have a say in the community, the partners are the people we push people towards if they need help, but they're also the people we first consult about things. And partners can also suggest features for the roadmap without having to go through initial, like normally they'd have to put a post on the ideas forum, get enough community interest for us to then think about bringing it into the roadmap, whereas partners can actually say this idea I have, I can fund it or I can put people behind it, or I just have this idea and I think it needs to come into Maltic. Obviously, it still goes through a sanity check. We still go through the process of, is it appropriate for that to come into Maltic? But we've tried to incentivize it so that there are reasons why organizations might want to become a partner. So that benefits us because they're financially contributing, but it benefits us because they're practically contributing. And some of those organizations are partners just through forum posting. Some are partners just through doing marketing and communications and writing and editing blogs. And some are much more involved in the code. So from our perspective, that has helped to get more organization engagement and buy-in to being a part of this project, to being part of the beating heart of the project effectively and have a say as well and be able to, yeah, influence things. Sounds like a lot of work for new contributors. Can you talk to me a bit about how you manage to diversify the contributor base, given that not everyone has the access or time to do that sort of work? Yeah, good question. Partly through encouraging organizations to fund the people who are working for them to contribute in work time, making it really clear in our contribution notes. I think Errol, you mentioned that we have like, this is how you can get involved as a writer. This is how you can get involved as a designer. This is how you can get involved as a reviewer, a tester, whatever. Takes you straight to go to Slack and the channel gives you a list of issues that we have that are current issues that need design work or need writing, whatever. And we also have a new contributors channel where people can specifically go. And when they join the channel, it asks them a few questions like, what do you want to get involved in? And then we can make sure the right team members onboard those people into the right tasks. So that's sort of one way. Also, we're trying to work more closely with our international community because we have a massive community in Brazil, for example, many of whom don't speak English. And the majority of our project, our official language is the US, uh, Ian US, which I'm not happy about because I'm ENGB police, but there we go. Sorry. Someone always ends up running behind me in blog posts, correcting my Americanization or lack of, should I say, but... So we're trying to find ways to empower local communities who don't necessarily speak English to run their own contribution sprints, you know, so maybe it will take having someone, one or two people who can interpret and one or two people from the core team to actually go and run some sessions and empower that community to run their own contribution sessions. And then they can work on the things they really care about and have a channel in a way that they can do that with others and don't have to necessarily have that in, that hurdle of needing to speak enough English to be able to engage. 
So, and also working with other projects like Season of Docs, trying to work with She Codes Africa and organizations like that to however we can to help support and mentor people to get involved in open source on a personal level, but also on an organizational level. I love that. We are planning to have a podcast recorded later this month, which should go out September sometime of entirely Portuguese speakers talking about co-sustainability, awesome. which I'm really excited about. So I'd love you to share that with the Brazilians as well. More languages are the best. So this is going to be a weird question, but I kind of want to ask it anyway. You strike me as someone who comes off as calm, which is rare for an open source community person, because often I feel like it's fires, 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 fires. Ah, okay, let's get everyone on. Let's get everyone on. Let's just fix the thing. And I want to know, have you thought about a five-year plan or a 20-year plan for Mautic? What does sustainability down the road mean for this project as opposed to just, okay, do we have enough people coming to the conference to get our budget sorted? Like, how are you working towards a longer goal of what a better ecosystem, a better project would be? Are you spying on my computer? Because I was literally just working on that. <laughs> no, I'm not, but awesome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's quite tricky doing longer-term plans when you have lots of businesses that are depending on your software, right? Because what one business thinks the product should do is maybe different to what another business thinks the product should do. So it's very difficult for us to, at the moment anyway, at this stage, to be we will do this, but I'm, I am working on a 10-year vision with a three-year strategy at this point in time of like what, where we need to go product-wise, but where we also need to go community and ecosystem-wise in order to achieve that 10-year vision. But also like just technology changes at such a fast pace, I sort of feel like it's a bit doing anything more concrete than that vision for 10 years is kind of a bit pointless because who knows what's going to be around in technology in 10 years' time. But there's definitely some things that we do want to do. Like we definitely want to make sure that we improve our API coverage and ultimately become API first, whatever that will mean in 10 years, five years time. We want to be able to enable people to just use the marketing autom automation part of Mautic and use their own customer data platform and use their own front end, for example. And Mautic just does the middly bits, but it technologically, that takes quite a lot of work to do. So yeah, vision... And a three-year strategy, sort of where we're at. The Long Now Foundation, partially founded by Kevin Kelly and other people in San Francisco, are working on a 10,000-year clock, which will work for 10,000 years. Make sure that Mautic's API is able to hit their API to just work on this 10,000-year API schedule. So, no, that's great. I'm glad you're working on that. That's wonderful. I think this is actually probably a good place to wrap up because we are running up on time, for which I am very sorry. Ruth. Where is the best place for people to follow along, not only with Mautic and with the community and to get engaged, but also with your writings and your thoughts? For uh, Mautic, you can follow us on most social media channels if you just search for Mautic Community, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, all the usual channels. And we do have a newsletter, funnily enough. <laughs> so you can sign up for that on our website. For me personally, Twitter is a good place, LinkedIn. And I do have, as you mentioned, a new website shiny and pretty. Yeah, that's probably the best ways to keep in touch with me. And if you're into long distance running, I do have an Instagram account called Training with EDS, which is my ultra marathon training and running. <laughs> I am. That is awesome. Real excitement right here. That is totally genuine. Cool. Ruth Cheesley, that's C-H-E-E-S-L-E-Y.co.uk is the website. You can find Ruth on R Cheesley again, R-C-H-E-E-S-L-E-Y on Twitter. Thank you so much, Ruth. This is excellent, but don't leave yet. 
This is the other part of the show. Spotlight is where we point out other projects or people which have really helped our careers along, helped our lives, or just made the walk with the dog that much easier. Eric Berry, if you're listening, we love you. We love you. So now to go through the spotlights before we wrap up for good, Justin Dorfman, why don't you lead us off? What's your spotlight today? My spotlight today is Tor D Source. So like the Tour de France, but it's tortoisource.substack.com. Dot com. It's a newsletter that just basically highlights open source projects and how they work. Awesome. Thank you very much. Errol Fox? I think I've realized something in that I've stopped looking for open source projects that aren't to do with like my special interest hobbies at the moment, which is all to do with D&D. So I was shared this project recently by mentioned already on this podcast, Dwayne O'Brien. You can find it at github.com slash A-Z-G-A-A-R slash fantasy dash map dash generator. So if you want to generate your own fantasy world to set your D&D campaign in, hey, go there. Awesome. Super cool. Ben, someone who never, ever thinks about fantasy or board games or anything similar. What's your spotlight today? The other subject that I think about quite a lot in cycling. So following on from the Tour de France, the Tour de Source, I want to just mention a project that was recently added to Open Source Collective's roster called Roden, which is, I think, maybe one of our first hardware projects. This is Argentinian guy who is creating open source bicycle designs. And yeah, I think there's no reason why we can't build practical things in the same kind of philosophy that we have at open source. So yeah, you can check that out. And if you know anything about manufacturing, you know anything about CAD, then you can contribute. He's looking for collaborators. So there you go. Thank you so much. My spotlight today is actually Richard Matthews. Richard Matthews founded Oyster Yachts in 1973. The Oyster Yacht Yard is in Ipswich. My father and I went to boat shows. My dad was a yacht captain for many years. Always broke. You don't actually have to have money to be into yachts, it turns out. You just have to be really risk prone. And what I like about Richard Matthews and Oyster Yachts is that A, they're beautiful boats, but B, he's a really nice person. He and I are both members of the Royal Naval Tot Club of Antigua and Barbuda. And we were able to together actually fund a hip replacement for another member. So if you're ever in Antigua and Barbuda, check out the Royal Naval Tot Club and toast the queen. If you're ever in Ipswich, go to the Oyster Yacht Boat Yards. This is probably the weirdest spotlight I have done. Ruth, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight is an open source tool that you can use to compose music because I'm also an amateur musician. I've been learning the flute for three years and just learning the piano for the last couple of years. And it's called Ardor. So www.ardour.org and on GitHub as well. Really, really powerful tool. Really powerful. More powerful, I think, than some of the proprietary tools out there. And a fantastic community of people who have created loads of resources to help noobs like me learn how to do MIDI and things like that. So yeah, really fantastic. And I'm really enjoying making all kinds of weird noises with it. So hopefully at some point it will turn into being music. Love that. And uh, please share with us when you finally have something online. If you do already, we will tweet that out and put it in the show notes if we can. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I certainly did. I kind of want to have something more than just quotes. I kind of want to have actual items you can go forth and do, which I feel like maybe we should begin to do in the future. For now, if you have any thoughts on anything that was said here, you could always jump on our discourse, discourse.sustainoss.org and join the conversation. You can also email us at podcast.sustainoss.org. That goes through all of the hosts, so you can feel free to complain there about any one of us, and we will hear together and sit and make fun of you, which is really exciting. You could also tweet at us, at sustain. OSS, and we were happy to engage there. 
If you liked this podcast a lot, please like us on Apple and on Spotify and wherever giant extractive podcasts are sold, because that does actually help get more listeners or just recommend it to other people, especially the snarky bit at the end. Again, thank you all so much. And Ruth, this was really wonderful. The show notes for anyone who wants to just click on the links and forgets how to spell Cheesley, C-H-E-E-S-L-E-Y, are at podcaststhesameoss.org, of course. And with that, signing off, good luck. Thank you so much, Ruth, and take care. 